Hi everyone and welcome to an exclusive podcast brought to you by VJ Oncology. Today, we are excited to introduce our esteemed panel of experts to talk about the latest developments in GU cancer presented at the ESMO 2021 annual meeting. In this podcast, leading GU cancer expert Laurence Albiges from the Gustave Rossi Institute in France and Enrique Grande from the MD Anderson Cancer Centre in Madrid in Spain discuss edafitinib in patients with metastatic urothelial carcinoma in the NOR study, innovative data on pembrolizumab plus CEFB4 HSA in advanced urothelial carcinoma, updates from the VESPA study in muscle invasive bladder cancer and more. And now, pass it over to the experts for today's GU Cancer Session with VJ Oncology. Good morning and welcome to Paris for this hybrid ESMO 2021. My name is Laurence Albiges and I'm pleased to welcome you. I have the pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Enrique Grande. Welcome. How are you, Laurence? Very good, thank you. Thank you for being here in Paris. It's a pleasure. So we have this uh, hybrid meeting few faculties on site, and so we're very fortunate to have the opportunity to discuss with you what are the updates in urothelial carcinoma. Over the course of the um, few uh, past years, there has been tremendous changes in the way we treat patients with bladder cancer. And what we would like to do now is, during this ESMO, understand what are the news, what are the discussion around patient management. So if you're fine, we can start with localized disease. Perfect. Patient with organ-confined uh, urothelial carcinoma, bladder cancer, eligible for surgery. Uh, we have randomized data now to help to understand what is the optimal chemotherapy. Can you let us know more about the VESPER trial? Well, the VESPER trial, probably you know more than, than me about the trial because it was conducted here in France. I think uh, a total of 28 sites uh, spread all across the country, participated in the VESPER trial. This is a cooperative group trial in between an association of the JETU group and the association of the French Urology. So I think there is a tremendous effort behind. I think, uh, well, I congratulate Dr. Fister, the, the lead of the trial, together with Dr. Professor Stefan Coulin. And, and uh, they, because they have a lot of merit to put that much effort to do such kind of a huge effort in coordinating all of these sites, you know, recruiting patients in a very challenging uh, setting of the disease, you know, the perioperative setting. And this is one of the key things because they included 500 patients were randomized in the perioperative setting, including patients in the adjuvant and in the neoadjuvant setting. So when you say either neoadjuvant or adjuvant. Can you explain what was the decision process? That's one of the key things from this VESPER trial, and it is, it is important to understand the selection of the patients recruited in the trial to understand the global um, environment, the, the, the global data. Um, well, it was depending on the site if they were recruiting the patient for the neoadjuvant approach or the adjuvant approach after the cystectomy, you know? And, 88% of the patients recruited in the VESPER trial, they receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy before the radical cystectomy, as the guidelines are recommending. 12% were receiving um, cisplatin gemcirabine or back after the radical cystectomy. Um, this is one of the key conclusions of the VESPER trial. We should perform neoadjuvant, preferable 
ahead of the adjuvant treatment of these patients. So at least it's feasible. What it tells us, it's feasible to do Absolutely. no adjuvant. The randomization, and we're coming to that, was about the choice, the chemotherapy itself. But the physician could choose if it was offered in neoadjuvant or adjuvant. And we now know over 430 patients treated in the neoadjuvant space. Exactly. So now let's get to the randomization. What was the comparison? The standard arm were three, were four cycles of cisplatin gemcitabine four cycles. And the comparator arm, the experimental arm, was the, um, the use of dose dense and back, but instead of the four cycles, six cycles of treatment. I so that it would be the same treatment duration? Absolutely. Probably this is the same treatment duration, but maybe a different approach than the normal use of dose dense and back we, are, we were used to deal with that. Does it matter? the number of cycles. This is just a matter of intensity of the treatment we are giving, you know? This is of the, one of the key challenges. Another key point here is the primary endpoint, progression-free survival rate at three years' time. Uh, is that endpoint better than the pathological complete responses? Because normally we were uh, selecting the treatment according to the pathological complete responses we obtained with the chemotherapy, you know? Uh, I think clinically. Yeah, it's a very clinical, relevant end point. Absolutely. And it was also matching new adjuvant and adjuvant, because at the time mm -hmm. we would not know what would be uh, the pickup for the, the adjuvant. Okay, so we do have results of pathological response. What are the key results on this? Uh, for those patients randomized to the standard arm, four cycles of CISGEM, 36% of patients achieved the pathological complete response, while 42% of patients achieved pathological complete responses with the dose dense and back. So numerically higher in terms of pathological response. Now, um, one good thing, 90% of each arm of the patients uh, underwent the radical cystectomy. Okay. So dose dense and back, the more dense a regimen, you know, it is not conditioned the radical cystectomy. Excellent. Uh, primary endpoint was PF, uh, progression free survival at three years. What are the results with regard to PFS? 10% different. 66% of the patients treated with dose dense and back before the surgery were free of progression after three years versus 56%. I think this is clinically meaningful, these results. And so uh, the author looked at both the ITT, meaning the 500 each patient, but also the neoadjuvant. A study subpopulation. Your feeling is that we should focus on this subset of patients? Uh, I think we should do that because this is a very robust subgroup. This is 88% of the patients recruited there, so this is a very robust subgroup. So, uh, well, statistically speaking, the VESPER trial taking in the, in the intention to treat, in the global concept, you know, is, is not positive. But we are, I'm always saying the same, we are not a statistician, we are doctors, we are you know, we are dealing with patients, not with numbers, you know. And for me, the, the clinical data are relevant. And so overall survival analysis. We have 40 months follow-up, so quite nice. The author planned to perform the full overall survival analysis after five years, but we already see a trend favoring those dents, right? Has a ratio of 0.66 for OS. I think is a very, very good trend. Of course, we cannot say this is statistically significant yet, but I think we are in the right direction. So does that mean you're going to change your practice and use six cycle of those dents and back? For me, the VESPER trial is confirming that six cycles of those dents and backs is better in terms of activity than four cycles of CISGEN. This is, uh, for me, this is the main conclusion. The thing is in the clinic, 
all your patient slogans in your clinic are meeting not only the Galski criteria for eligibility to cisplatin, but are meeting the criteria no, you have not. for those then send back. This is the key thing here. So now I want us to take a step back and think about what other data we have in the new adjuvant space, because we've been discussing chemotherapy, but we now have um, immune checkpoints that are coming in the new adjuvant space. We have new drugs that are with high response rate that we want to see in this new adjuvant space. So can you just put Vesper in the context of other new adjuvant cohorts? Well, uh, for those patients eligible for cisplatin, well, the, the current up and running phase three trials are combining chemotherapy, cisgem, plus immune oncology drugs. Uh, the thing is, when, when you see a small phase two non-randomized data, pathological complete responses, you can see um, a range in between 37, 39% versus 47, something like that. So 42% of pathological complete responses with those then sent back at Vesper is not, is not doing that much different than, than the combination of chemo plus IO. In addition to that, chemo plus IO in the metastatic setting, in Vigo 130, Kino 361, unfortunately it's not showing a synergistic activity. So I'm not really convinced about the, about the data of these phase three trials, and I'm not convinced about this comparator arm this trial had, cisplatin gemcitabine. So let's see. Yeah, so basically, Vesper is providing the new benchmark for what we anticipate in neoadjuvant mm -hmm. in terms of pathological CR. I'm afraid the, the, when these phase three trials are releasing the results, uh, I'm afraid we will need to do an indirect comparison with the VESPER data, not only with the comparator arm, but with the VESPER data. Okay, great. So we've discussed neoadjuvant, and there has been a lot of data coming in the adjuvant space and a lot of debate as well. So any news at this ESMO with regard to adjuvant in your carcinoma? Well, uh, nivolumab uh, has just been approved by the FDA for the treatment of uh, high-risk muscle invasive bladder cancer patients with using nivolumab as a single agent in the adjuvant setting based on disease-free survival improvement. Um, is that clinically relevant without improvement in overall survival? There is a huge debate in the social media around it. Um, I, my, my personal opinion here is that I think this is something useful, at least something that merits to be discussed with the patient. Hey, I have one thing that is impacting in the disease-free, but we don't, we don't know anything about the overall survival because uh, nobody has seen the overall survival data so far. We are, we are looking forward to seeing that hopefully next year we will have some preliminary data about the overall survival, no? But um, there was a subgroup of patients treated in the Checkmate 274 trial, particularly those patients who received neoadjuvant chemotherapy that seemed to benefit more in terms of disease-free survival than the others. So probably you can do both. You can do Vesper in the neoadjuvant treatment followed by uh, adjuvant abelumab. I don't know if a country like France can afford it, I don't, but a country like Spain, yeah. maybe not. So let's see, let's see. We can translate the Checkmate 274 data to our daily practice. Very interesting, and we are looking forward to have the overall survival data indeed. So let, now let's move to metastatic disease. And I want to start with a biomarker-driven strategy. So we know that FGFR alteration can be seen in uh, up to 20% of patients with urothelial carcinoma. We know that erdafitinib has been developed in a previously exposed patient population to uh, cisplatin. And now we have data in first-line setting 
for those patients that are cisplatin non-eligible, that's the NORSE trial. Um, so maybe put that into the context. We had Biscay in the past, which was in patient heavily pretreated. We had at ASCO meeting other uh, FGFR um, inhibition that was tested. So let us know more about NORSE um, endpoint, NORSE uh, strategy. What was this trial about? Well, this trial is combining nerdafitinib, uh, the first but not the last uh, FGFR inhibitor developed in the field of urothelial tumors. Nerdafitinib, uh, don't forget that it is already approved by the FDA, so our colleagues in the US, they have the opportunity to select patients and treat patients accordingly. Unfortunately, in Europe, we don't have that data. We don't have that approval. We are waiting for the phase three trial in the SAVAGE setting, in those patients' uh, platinum refractory, IO refractory setting. This is a new step in the precision medicine uh, in urothelial tumors. Um, this is bringing the precision medicine to the first line. We are pushing the precision medicine to the first line. So one of the key questions when, when we should do the next generation sequencing to our patients and we said, okay, after platinum or after immunotherapy. Now it seems that maybe we can select patients upfront. I think this is too early, too, well, not too early, too soon to, uh, to say that. Um, but uh, I'm, uh, I think we are on the way to select patients the, 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 the sooner the better. No? Um, in the NORSE trial, this was a phase two trial in which uh, patients were receiving erdafitinib alone or in combination with um, a PD-1 inhibitor. Um, so if you think about the design, that is a bit puzzling, right? Because you want, they, they went for cisplatin non-eligible, so standard yeah. would be carboplatin, if the patient can receive chemo based chemotherapy, or it could be PD-1 inhibition in this setting, right? In patient biomarker positive. So, or carbo followed by abelumab. Yes. Uh, so you that know, means that the, the control arm in NORSE, is that the one you wanted to see? Probably not. Probably not. But, but, but you know, it's, well, this is, we, we like to play to precision medicine or not. If you like to play to precision medicine, you believe that the FGFR is, the, is a driver at the urothelial tumors. And I don't think we are at that point. In the Savage setting, the New England publication by your colleague and friend, our colleague and friend, Johan Logriot, you know, it is showing a great response rate, 44%. This is amazing in 100 patients in the Savage setting, amazing. However, take a look at the median PFS, only five months. Take a look at the median duration of response, six months. This is not a driver, at least for me. I want to believe this is a driver. Maybe when you are using this kind of drugs before, you know, when the patient has a better performance status before chemotherapy, you know, maybe the responses are better, maybe the duration of responses, the quality of the responses are better. But today you're, with You're touching on the keynote lecture that we just <laughs> had from Bill Carlin, and I think it's it's great to have the opportunity to, to see this lecture where he clearly was highlighting the idea that we're developing targeted therapy in later lines where they may actually play a stronger role uh, in earlier lines. Exactly. So, so here in North, a strong activity, right? It's a preliminary data because the study is still ongoing, but strong activity of both erdafitinib alone and erda plus PD-1 inhibition, right? 62% of responders. 62%, I think, is a high bar. It's a high bar uh, in comparison with chemotherapy, with former chemotherapy. But the thing is, what about the median progression free survival? What about the median overall survival? We don't have this data. This, the NORSE trial is a very small trial so far, 27 patients per arm, something like that. So I think we need more data, more robust data, longer follow-up to see, to, to put this data into context. 
And in the BIS case study, which was presented at ESMO two years ago now, physically, uh, physically at the time, uh, we, uh, we had uh, a strategy of FGFR inhibition plus uh, PD-1, PDL-1 axis inhibition. And at that time, there was no added value. Uh, do you think because it's not maybe not, not the same PD-1 inhibitor because it's later in the disease? How, how do you see things? I love the BISKI trial, but uh, because uh, they recruited patients and selected molecularly patients not only for FGFR alteration but also for PA3K, AKTM TOR, and also for DNA repairing genes alterations in comparison in combination with durvalumab. You know, and nothing was succeeding. Nothing was succeeding. So I don't know. Maybe it's because of the of the IO that were chosen. Uh, all the IO are behaving the same in this setting. Turbalumab is the same than Ateso, or Ateso is the same that um, Themiplimab, or, you know, it's, it's, let's see, let's see. Uh, we can't compare small phase two trials, even if the patients are molecularly selected. I think this, this, is, a, this is a mistake that we all, we all are, do. Yeah. Are doing. Okay, and so now we're going to move again a bit further in the disease with very innovative data. So it's a phase two non-randomized with a new target, Efrin B2. And so this Efrin B2 uh, seems to be expressed in more than half of the patient with urothelial carcinoma and seems to be associated with the ability to recruit immune cells and therefore enhance immune response. So what we've seen here is a non-randomized phase two in patient pretreated with chemotherapy, but never treated with IO, and who re received this Efrin B2 inhibitor. It's the B4 compound, a very sophisticated name, so we're gonna say uh, Efrin B2 inhibitor, plus uh, pembrolizumab. So what is your take on this study? Um, I have a lot of challenges. Uh, I can see a lot of challenges on this trial. First, patient population recruited. Uh, after the approval of the javelin maintenance strategy, uh, we are all convinced that chemo followed by abelumab is the current standard of care. Even in those patients that are progressing to chemotherapy, immune oncology drugs is the standard of care because Pembro has improved the overall survival. So the thing is, do we have now in our clinic patients refractory to platinum, but they are naive to IO? The answer I, is no. I don't. And, and the thing is, uh, is that ethic? Because, uh, well, I, I think I, I want to my patients to provide things that are impacting in overall survival. And immune-oncology drugs are impacting in overall survival, either in the maintenance setting or in the second-line setting. So uh, for me, it's, it's not easy to, to see this patient population with the data we have today. This is the first challenge. Second challenge, um, well, Efrin B2 positive patients. That means um, expression of above 1% in the immunostochemistry. You know uh, that this is, uh, I don't know, I don't know if we can consider positive patient uh, someone that is uh, just 1% of immunostochemistry expression. Probably uh, elevating the bar of the expression, probably we will see more responses or not, or maybe not. Uh, second thing, the Efrin pathway is correlated with the expression of PDL1 because um, Dr. Sadigi did a great job, you know, and, and, and uh, when you read the list of authors be, uh, behind, you know, uh, the David Quinn, Primo Lara, so, so there are a lot of authors that uh, they have a lot of experience here. So uh, I didn't see any data about the PDL1 expression activity. 
So maybe, why not? I don't know. Uh, maybe we have a correlation in between the expression of B2 and the expression of PDL1, and we, we are measuring exactly the same thing, but uh, you know, with different markers. I, I don't know about it. Uh, because uh, the Efrin pathway is involved in the traffic regulation of the immune cells. So maybe there is a correlation in between expression of B2 and PDL1, and this is just what we are seeing. That would make our life easier, actually, because it's easier to get the expression of PDL1 than Efrin B2, at least from a uh, SOP standpoint, so that would maybe maybe make our life easier. So you question the biomarker and its relation with PD1. I uh, I do I do because um, don't forget that Efrin uh, B2 is particularly expressed on endothelial cells, and the drug is given for hypertension. So maybe this fusion protein of FB4 plus uh, the human serum albumin, you know, it's, it's just an anti-angiogenic anti agent. Maybe. Why not? Uh, and and when, when we have the data of uh, Cabo Ateso in this setting, well, 37% of responders in non-selective patient population. While here with Nephrin B2, we're going above the 50%. Above, yeah, 52. But in the intention to treat population, 37, mm. exactly the same responders than with Cabo Ateso. Okay, so what you want to see is more data, absolutely, more Ra granularity with regard to and the ran yeah. randomized data. And randomized data with uh, an IO or at least a, a PD1 mm -hmm. inhibition in patients that are matching our routine practice, either maintenance or in, a, in maybe earlier stage. Or, okay. or even with antibody drug conjugates. Okay. We will have a Fortumap approved in Europe or available in Europe soon. So, so I want to see the data of Fortumap if every two positive patients, you know, and I want to see the randomization of these patients. Excellent. Well, Enrique, thank you a lot for all this insight on these important data. What is the next really hot topic for you? in urothelial carcinoma for future meeting? The, the, the one that is coming shortly, and I, and I think it is coming sooner than expected, is the, the results of the Checkmate 901. Okay. In PDL1 positive population. I'm really looking forward to seeing this data. So hopefully we'll have the chance to discuss that together in Physically. the future. We'll, we'll see. And hopefully. physically, I hope we'll have the pleasure to welcome you again in Paris next year for our ESMO 2022 that will be hopefully physically. Thank you very much, Enrique. Thank you, Laurence. Thank you for your attention. Thank you to our expert panel and to you for listening to this post-ESMO session with VJ Oncology. If you have found this podcast useful, please leave a review and subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple and Spotify, so we can continue to deliver our expert-led content directly to you. Follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology to join in the conversation and visit vjoncology.com for the latest updates in the field.